Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you once again um, thankful for that you've brought believers here to uh, pick up the book of Chronicles, to examine your word, and to learn more about you. Lord, I ask your blessing on this lesson, that we would learn more about you and worship you more fully. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I want to welcome our guests from Virginia. We have a youth group in from out of town. And just to catch you guys up, um, this semester we've been following the uh, plan of God's redemption for mankind all throughout the Old Testament, all the way up to the exile of Judah in Babylon. So today we've arrived at a very pivotal point in history. The year is, we think, somewhere around 500 B.C., maybe 450 B.C., so approximately 2,500 years ago. And as I think about that, that might seem like ancient, ancient history, so disconnected. But do you know that the average generation is about 25 to 40 years? So by my math, that's only about 60 to 100 generations in the past. I think that brings it a little closer. I don't know. Most of these genealogies are lost in history. We don't know, but there might be some of us here who are direct descendants of these people we're going to learn about, these exiles returning from Babylon. Or we might have distant relatives. We actually have one person, she's not here today, Diane Thornton is a direct descendant of the nation of Israel. Regardless, it doesn't really matter whether we're blood descendants of these people or not. Uh, we always remember why we're going through the Old Testament, because like the Apostle Paul said in um, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching. And I think when he used the word all, he included chronicles in that. So there you go. What we're going to do is a, a fairly good historical analysis, a review to give us context of where we're at, how we got to where we are uh, with God's chosen people, their timeline. And I want to give you three main themes, very important themes as an outline, so that when you read through these texts, um, you'll have a deeper appreciation for what really the chronicler, is what we'll call him, is trying to accomplish. And I would encourage you, as we always do, these lessons are just a 10,000-foot flyover. They're not a deep theological, extensive analysis of the text. And so we always encourage you, take the time to read through these books. Even though First Chronicles is nine chapters of genealogies, and there's a lot of books in both of these, I found myself, when I started this weeks ago, when I got five chapters from the end, I was leaning forward in my chair going, how does it end? So I'd encourage you to look and see what you find. You might be amazed at what you learn. Okay, so some historical context to where we are. I'm going to back up a little bit. It's always good to review. My coach always said repetition is a facet of learning. So we'll review things that you may already know. If you remember, the 12 tribes of Israel split in 922 B.C. Ten tribes went to the north, and they were called Israel, the northern kingdom. Two tribes stayed in the south, and they were called Judah. It was Judah and Benjamin, the southern kingdom. Now, 200 years after the split, Israel became completely apostate and wore out God's patience. And he'd warned them that there would be punishment. Sure enough, they were overrun by the Assyrians, overwhelmed, overrun, and spread throughout the nations, which they largely still are today. Judah, to the south, remained faithful for about three or four generations, but 130 years later, they too became apostate. God's patience with them wore out, and just like he'd promised, 
he let a kingdom called Babylon overrun them. And it's very interesting. I'll throw a little tidbit out that, I, that struck me. Nebuchadnezzar, the king, did something that Hitler actually did to the Jews. In the very beginning, Hitler came and took the political leaders and the elite and took them to the concentration camps so that they couldn't rile up the people against Hitler. Nebuchadnezzar did the same thing. He took a king and a few power elite and put them in chains, and then the people came later. I found that very interesting. But this is kind of what happened that led us up to where we are today. And we know that this 70-year captivity that they were in in Babylon was a profoundly important event in the history of the nation of Israel. It was then, and it still is today. Now, the author of Chronicles apparently, from what we can tell, was one of the exiles. He was there, as far as we can tell, because he's writing primarily from the perspective of the returning exiles. So it seems like he was a southerner. Everything in this book is primarily directed at Judah, unlike kings, which kind of talk to both the northern and the southern kingdom. So keep this in mind as you read through Chronicles. That's kind of a helpful lens. And again, this is written right after they've come back from the exile a few years Um, And like Samuel and Kings, we'll talk about the relationship here. First and second Chronicles, that's what we're talking about today, were originally one book. So was Samuel, so was Kings. That's kind of how I'm going to treat them today, as one work. The Hebrew name for the book, like you see on the slide, translates to the events of the days. The genre is historical narrative, And they're part of the grouping of books we know as the historical writings, which capture the history of the nation of Israel. It's interesting where we get the word chronicles. That's not what the original writer used. But Jerome, one of the early church fathers, uh, when he translated the Bible into Latin, uh, he titled it the Chronicle of Judah's Judah's History. And so that title kind of stuck. So we can thank uh, Jerome for naming this book. And like I said, we don't know exactly who the chronicler was. We'll call him the chronicler, this author. We think maybe it was Ezra, whom we will study next week. He was a priest, Ezra, so we have a question mark after his name. Regardless of who the author was, the historical context of when he wrote helps us understand why he wrote. So this is important to understand. And to get a sense of this context, let's turn to, if you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Chronicles. And we'll look at chapter 9. 1 Chronicles chapter 9. And we'll look at the first two verses starting in the second half of verse 1. 1 Chronicles chapter 9, starting with the second half of verse 1. I'll read that for us. And Judah was taken into exile in Babylon because of their breach of faith. Now, the first to dwell again in their possessions in their cities were Israel. The priests, the Levites, and the temple servants. It's interesting he says Israel here. I just said we were talking about the perspective from Judah. Um, So I had to figure out, why is he talking Israel? Apparently, there were some of the northerners that came down to celebrate Pentecost, or Passover, sorry, the Passover. They may have stayed and gone into captivity. Maybe the king was letting them go before the, the the, the Jews. We don't know, or the rest of Judah. But anyway, he says Israel came back first, the priests, Levites, the temple servants. So he's framing this saying, okay, this is what happened, and here's the first to come back. Last week... In the book of Daniel, we saw the prophet Daniel rejoicing that the end of the exile was near. So again, today we're coming to the point where they've come back after the exile and they've returned to Jerusalem. 
And if you think about this book of Chronicles, uh, kind of like a timeline, like any person, uh, if you had a slideshow of your life showing snapshots of going back to your birth and events during your life, that's kind of how Chronicles functions as a, a history of the people, getting them to where they are now. The author here is reminding the exiles where they came from, when and where they were conceived, who they came from, and, and again, how they got to where they are today. And he reaches all the way back to Adam when he starts out, all the way back to the very beginning of time, tracing their roots and their history. And then the second half of the images get to King David, and the story slows down, and he focuses a lot on David, the royal monarch, and his monarchy, and we'll get to that. But it is a deliberate retelling of their history, Chronicles is, all with one purpose. It's to encourage the people in the hope of God's promises moving forward. The purpose of the writer of Chronicles is wanting to encourage the returning exiles that God's promises can give them hope moving forward. Okay, so just to see if you were listening to me, where are we in history, before, during, or after the exile? Okay. Just making sure you were listening. After the exile. This is a key fact in appreciating Chronicles. You remember back, if you've been paying attention over the past seven months, the history of the entire 12 tribes of Israel is filled with a lot of hope, right? They saw God's promises fulfilled, but a lot of tragedy. And as we've gone through uh, their history, uh, we've seen both. We've seen a lot of national tragedy, a lot of apostasy, but a lot of redemption. This morning, you'll see both in Chronicles. But God inspired the author to do more than just retell their history. That's what Kings was for. Kings was showing them, here's what you did wrong, and here's the punishment you received. But here as we read Chronicles, I'll keep emphasizing this. The author is giving God's people a message of hope that, like I said, that the God of Israel does not change, and he keeps his promises. Very important. That's what we're going to talk about this morning, starting off, is his promises. And I want to unpack for you three promises that have been made, and we've talked about these. But for those of you that um, aren't really familiar with these promises, I'll unpack them. We'll go through them, differentiate them a little bit. For those of you that are familiar, like I said, repetition is a facet of learning, right? So we'll review those, because they play a key role in looking at chronicles and understanding what was in the mind of the chronicler? So the first promise, and I'll go through these in chronological order. The first promise we'll see at play is the promise that God made to Abraham repeatedly in the book of Genesis. Let's take a minute and recall what we now know as the Abrahamic covenant. It's not called that in the Bible, I don't think. We made that. Uh, but this is very much in the mind of the author of Chronicles. When we look back at Genesis 17, this is verses 6 through 8. God appears to Abraham at the time he was called Abram. And he says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And as we talked about in January when I taught through Genesis, if you'll remember, um, the words I will 
appear multiple times. I will, I will, I will. God is sealing himself to this covenant. And he uses the word an eternal, um, everlasting possession. So he's stressing that this is a unilateral covenant. It's not dependent on their actions at all. Keep that in mind. The second promise we're going to look at in Chronicles here is the promise that God made to Moses. In Exodus 19 through 24, he gave them the law that they were to obey if they wanted to be obedient to him. And this is further detailed in, um, in Deuteronomy 28. God promises to make, as you can see, Israel. He promises to make Israel a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. He says that if his people are obedient to his law, he will bless them. But if they disobey, what will happen to them? Punishment. This is what we call the Mosaic Covenant. The Mosaic Law, this is important to understand, was not a means of salvation. It was a means of revealing to them their sinful nature and their needs for a Savior. Their need for a Savior. Okay? Christ did not come. He even said he didn't come to abolish the law. He came to do what for it? Fulfill it. Right. A lot of people get confused on that. But the God of of the Bible never changes his means of salvation like it was for Abraham and his promises was through what? By God's grace alone, through faith alone. Hadn't changed here. So to understand the, the Mosaic Covenant better. Let's move on to the third promise that we see in play in the book of Chronicles. It's the promise that God made to David. This is found in 2 Samuel, later summarized in 1 Chronicles 17. This is another unconditional covenant. The Mosaic promise, this is important to understand, this was a conditional covenant. It depended on the people, okay, how they reacted. This one, the Davidic covenant, is unilateral. It doesn't matter what the people do. God is saying this is what's going to happen. He tells them that the Messiah would come from the lineage of David and that he would establish a kingdom that would endure forever. The Davidic covenant And it's just like the Abrahamic covenant. Again, it's not dependent on the people. The surety of this coming true rests solely on the God of the Bible. It doesn't depend on Israel's obedience whatsoever. Okay, so that's all context. But before we dive into Chronicles, we need to answer an important question that again gets to the purpose of Chronicles. And I keep restressing this thing. Why does he retell a history that's already kind of been told before? Because if you, if you think about this, and I grappled with this as I was reading through this, I kept flipping back to Samuel and to Kings. Wait, this is like a retelling of the same events. What's going on here? A lot of it overlaps, you can see. The answer is that while a lot of the events detailed in Chronicles overlap with these earlier books, there's a different purpose. There's a different theological purpose. First and Second Kings was also composed during the exile And like I said, Chronicles was composed, thank you, after the exile. Uh, Kings was a perfect example of the Mosaic Covenant being worked out. So the author was saying, look, you remember what he said, disobedience, you'll have punishment. And he reminded of that continually, right? For the chronicler, though, the exile is over. His purpose is to remind them of the faith they can have in the God of the Bible and the future for them. And that the promises, this is very important, the promises of rest and peace and blessings has not been rescinded. That's very important. If you could stop right here, you could all go home. That's the message of the, 
of Chronicles. So certain events that were very prominent in, in Kings are not really highlighted in Chronicles and vice versa. The ultimate goal of both authors is saving faith in the God of the Bible, right? But it's kind of like the Gospels, if you think about it, written by different authors, different perspective, maybe a slightly different audience, but they're all wanting them to have faith in God. Okay, so Kings, again, is why they had to go into the exile. Chronicles is about where their hope is now that they're back, okay? I think I've hammered that one to death. So if you could put your, yourself in the shoes of the exiles, imagine what must be going through their heads as they're now back in the land. A lot of them have heard of this place. They know it's God's promised land, you know, but we've been gone 70 years. Some of them don't even, have never been there. A lot of them heard about it from their fathers and grandfathers. I would imagine that if it was us, we would have some questions like, is God's promise of a Messiah still valid? And are we still his covenant people? And does God still care about us after everything we've been through? And so like I said, the chronicler has very carefully recorded these snapshots in time of their history to show them now that they're back in the land, the very land that God promised to Abraham and his descendants, that the promises are still valid. See, things weren't exactly as they expected them to be. If you remember back in Daniel chapter 9 last week, you taught on this, didn't you? The 70 years are over, but the 70 weeks have just begun. Remember the 70 sevens that must pass before the Lord's anointed one, the Messiah, begins his rule. So you could say the physical exile is over, but now they're still in spiritual exile. They're not really enjoying all of the full covenant blessings and promises just yet. If you look at Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 37, those haven't quite come to pass. These are the promises that, that they shall all know him. He'll gather the nations of Israel all back to the land. Remember, they're not there yet. All the ten are still spread out. This is Judah and Benjamin largely coming back. So that's not true yet. And uh, that they will know God, they won't have to really teach each other his word, and that he will be their God. And his sanctuary will be in their midst forever. So that's not true yet. They're still in a uh, kind of a spiritual exile waiting for this to come true. So Chronicles is written to tell the people they're not to place their ultimate hope in the return to the land. Okay? They're very excited to get their land back, but it's, that's not everything. God has a greater fulfillment of his promises to come. So how does this work out in Chronicles? So let's dive in and we'll find out. We're going to look at the first nine chapters briefly of Chronicles. These are the roots of these exiles. So if you'll turn with me to 1 Chronicles, you're probably there already. We're going to look at chapter 1, the first four verses. And you'll see these names. 1 Chronicles chapter 1, 1 through 4. Adam, Seth, Enosh, Kenan, Mahalalel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Some really famous names. And if you let your eyes drift, you'll notice that these lists of names goes on for a long time. Nine chapters. And I understand this is probably not something in the Bible that you're going to base your personal devotions on. I understand that. Nine chapters of genealogies? Are you serious? I'm a little bit weird. I've got three textbooks on these genealogies. They're fascinating because there's so much data. Do you realize these people have descended into a lot of the nations of the earth? 
And I found out that the royal lineages of, of the House of Saud of Saudi Arabia, the, the, the royal monarchy in Britain, the House of Norway, these are not Christian people, but their lineages are traced all the way back to Shem, Ham, and Japheth. They match perfectly with the biblical record. They've kept their histories. We may not have, but these are real histories. And uh, there's a reason why the chronicler included them. Remember the context here. These are fundamental to the chronicler's purpose. Just like their forefathers that are named here, uh, these people that he's writing to are God's chosen people. He's reminding them of that. This comes across in the way they're structured. And if you see here in verse 1 of chapter 1, he starts all the way at the beginning of time with whom? With Adam, the first man. And as he progresses through history, he always zeroes in on the line of promise, the line through which uh, the tribe of Judah would come, through which King David would come, and eventually who would come? The Messiah, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, if you um, look for chapter 1, verses 5 through 16. Chapter 1, verses 5 through 16. He mentions briefly two of Noah's sons, right? Japheth, who we think most of the European nations come through, and Ham, who we know was not a good guy. The Canaanites came through him. But then if you go to verse 17, he focuses in on Shem, the son through whom this lineage will progress, the promise of a Messiah. And amazingly, uh, and we get to David, let's see, chapter 2, flip forward to chapter 2. Look at verse 15 of chapter 2, 1 Chronicles. David appears, and if you look over at chapter 3, you'll see a list of David's sons. And amazingly, David's royal lineage is traced all the way through to the other side of the exile. And you see, um, if we skip all the way to the end of 2 Chronicles, at the end when they're being taken captive, uh, chapter 36 of 2 Chronicles, you don't have to turn there, but it mentions Zedekiah, the last king of David's descendants who was in rule. And then verse 9 of chapter 3 here, if you're still in 1 Chronicles chapter 3, he mentions a guy named, hope to, I don't butcher this, Zerubbabel who was the son of Zedekiah. So he's the one that's now governing Judah in Jerusalem after the exile. It's almost like the chronicler is saying, like he can't wait to say, okay, remember all this lineage, the promised line of the Messiah, from David all the way down to Zedekiah. His son, David's descendant, is still ruling over us. He's very excited to show them David's kingly line is still intact. Now move ahead to chapters 4 through 8. We've got the genealogies of some more of Jacob's sons. Who did God change Jacob's name to, by the way? What was he known afterwards? Israel. Israel. Yeah, so the, the point here is to show what happened to the ten tribes of Israel, known as the northern kingdom, because of their unfaithfulness, right? So unlike those who returned to Jerusalem in the exile, the northern tribes, like I said earlier, they were lost in the exile. Still... Let's turn to 1 Chronicles chapter 9 now. 1 Chronicles 9, let's go to verse 1. And here we see the summary statement. So, all Israel was recorded in the genealogies, and these are written in the books, the book of the king, kings of Israel. That phrase, all Israel, 
is one that's important. Even though, like I said, this book is written largely, primarily from the perspective of one of the the southern kingdom members, we think Ezra, talking to the southern kingdom, he's still very concerned with all of Israel for a very important purpose. And in fact, I looked through these two books. Uh, He talks about all Israel 45 times. So he hasn't forgotten about Israel. It's not all about Judah. Very important. But his inclusion of the northern tribes here tells us something. It tells us that the spiritual core of these people isn't found in their tribal or their national identity. Doesn't matter if you're a southern kingdomer. This is about the promises that God made to David when the kingdom was still united, applicable to all of them. These promises for anyone in Judah or in Israel who would repent and believe. Isn't that cool? We would expect that, wouldn't we? All right, let's move to 1 Chronicles chapter 10. And this is where we find, going back again, the united monarchy. Okay, This is where their, their hope stems from. Chapter 10, this begins a, a major section, and it goes all the way through 2 Chronicles chapter 9. These 29 chapters cover what we call the united monarchy. Remember the history lesson I gave you before the two kingdoms split? They were united, and King David ruled over them, and then his son Solomon. Okay? And this is where we find in these 27 chapters the meat of the hope of a Messiah promised in the Davidic covenant so the exiles could see the reason for their hope. So let's, let's refresh again once more the Davidic covenant. Remember, 1 Chronicles 17, this is, this is why David features so prominently in this book. Again, God says to David, when your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Here again, God is establishing his covenant with David. And we don't have time to do it justice here, but there's also an emphasis placed on the building of the temple. A lot of emphasis on uh, uh, David getting prepared for the temple to be built by his son Solomon. And a lot of, a lot of Solomon building of the temple in, in Kings... There was more emphasis on the throne. Here it's the temple. A lot of space given that. And it it's continues into Second Chronicles. Now why is this? This is kind of interesting to me. The focus is not on this building, the temple. God wanted to show the exiles. He wanted to show the Israelites that in order to have a reconciled place with God, and Solomon even recognized this as he was dedicating the temple in his prayer, he acknowledged, he says, um, we don't need a place for you to live. You, know, you don't need a, a, a temple to live in. But God was setting them up to say, this is where all the temple sacrifices will be made. Here you're going to come and consecrate yourselves. You're going to shed the blood of an animal. For sin there must be blood. But these, these sins were only temporarily covered. So Jesus will be the temple later because his blood will have shed for their sins, permanently covering their sins, there would be no need for a temple anymore. But here it's very important to set up and establish that understanding of this. So the temple features prominently. All right, let's move on. Second Chronicles chapter 10. This is where we see the kings of Judah. Chapter 10 all the way through 36. Um, if my math is right, that's 27 chapters, right? Where's Bryce when you need him? 
The rest of Chronicles gives a record of the kings of Judah. Let me flip forward to another slide here. This is basically the succession of the kings. This is where this really focuses on, from David and Solomon all the way down through the, the kings. Okay? And to understand the significance of this final section of Chronicles, we need to look at a crucial passage. It's 2 Chronicles 7, verses 14 and 15. And again, the, the author of um, Kings records the prayer that Solomon gave in dedication of the temple. But here is something a little bit different. The author of Chronicles includes some information that wasn't included in Kings. The author of Chronicles includes the fact that God came and spoke here. So he's drawing our attention to this. So let's look at this together. 2 Chronicles 7, 14 and 15. And I think most of you will recognize this. God says, If my people, who are called by my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. And Will Moneymaking and I were talking beforehand. A lot of us extrapolate this to America. But we have to remember the context is to God's promised people about a promised land that he was going to heal. I don't think America is the promised land. We know individually if we turn our hearts to God, if we repent and ask forgiveness, he says, seek me and you will find me. I am there. That is true. But this is applicable to people in a special place in a special time and a special land. Just wanted to throw that out there. But this verse establishes a very important facet of the Mosaic covenant that the chronicler wanted to emphasize with the returning exiles. Like I said, kings, the guy really wanted to pound this home. The chronicler still wants them to understand, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. And this verse shows the immediate retribution that God had in punishment for them, the immediate retribution. And beginning in chapter 10, all the way through, these guys that we talk about, these kings that descend from the the Davidic line, uh, 21 different kings from Rehoboam to Zedekiah, they're all evaluated in succession by how they live up to this verse. And the chronicler tells you how they did according to that verse. Did they humbly seek God, turn from sin, or did they stubbornly rebel, serve idols? And, and each one's life and, and uh, his rule is kind of detailed to show God's wrath was immediate. When they went apostate, each king, and they would lead their kingdom with them, they felt God's wrath and punishment in their own generation. So it was poured out on them. The chronicler wanted them to know that. I will throw a shout out to the faithful kings. There were a few. I was doing statistical analysis like, oh, we're two for five now with faithful kings. There's so many of them are apostate. I think it was like seven out of 21 or eight or something that were actually faithful. Uh, So shout out to Abijah, Asa, Jehoshaphat, Jotham, Hezekiah, and Josiah. I can't judge their hearts. God knows I might be wrong on one or two of these, but uh, they seem to be very faithful servants. So the book of Chronicles is full of examples of the Mosaic Covenant, both blessings for faith, punishment for disobedience. And each generation, very importantly, was judged for their own behavior. All right, let's fast forward to the end of the book, uh, 36, 2 Chronicles 36. 
And we'll see their level of disobedience right at the very end, wrapping up their history before they went into the exile in Babylon. Let's read 2 Chronicles chapter 36. We're going to look at verses 15 through 20. 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verses 15 through 20. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place, but they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of God rose up against his people until there was no remedy. Therefore, he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, and the Chaldeans were the Babylonians. Now look at verse 19, which says, And they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its places with fire and destroyed all its precious vessels. He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword. So a lot of people were killed, but many were taken down into captivity. But by God's grace, this is not where Chronicles ends. And we look in verses 22 through 23 now. God moves a foreign king, his name was Cyrus of Persia, into power, and he frees the people from captivity to allow them to come back where they are now into Jerusalem. And the dust has settled now. It's time to rebuild the temple. And the promise of God's covenant with Moses of immediate retribution for apostasy still stands. It's still there, but the chronicler wants them to know uh, they're no different than their fathers, but there is hope for God's people to put a bow on this. As they begin to regroup and rebuild in the land they were taken out of, they still have the hope and the promise of those genealogies that most of us just skip over, showing them that David's seed is still alive. The promise God made to Abraham, still intact. By the way, is it still intact today? Very much so. Are the Israelites all brought back to the land? No. No, it's very much in conflict right now. Chronicles reminds God's people and us, by extension, the promise of the coming Messiah, the fulfillment of the prophecies. He will be the promised son of David and the true temple. So Chronicles closes not with doubts about the people's future, but with hope and promise that the God of Israel does not change. Same thing that's true today. That he's still their God. He's still our God. He'll always be their God. And if they seek him, they'll find him because he's not hard to find. And if you read through the histories of these kings, one of the king's fathers, Will and I were talking, one of these kings was so evil, he sacrificed his own infant children into the fires of Moloch. Can you imagine? What a horrible, evil man. But as soon as a son would come in, or if one of the kings who had been apostate repented, guess what? God said, if you seek me, you will find me. I listen to atheists tell me, I don't see any evidence for God. That's not true. God was always there, ready to take his people back, to forgive them and bless them. It's an amazing thing we see here. Just like the exile. So what does this mean to us today? What would we have if we didn't have this book of Chronicles? We would perhaps lack more depth and clarity in understanding that we too can have confidence in Christ as we see the centuries-old promises he fulfilled. And we should be able to empathize, sympathize with these exiles because just like them, 
We're kind of living in this already but not yet uh, situation where we're waiting for Christ's return. He's inaugurated the kingdom, we, but we still live in a sin-cursed world with death. We just experienced that this week. It's a painful world. There's a lot of difficulty. But the message of Chronicles today reminds us of the same thing that the chronicler was reminding the exiles. I will repeat this again. No matter what our current circumstances are, we shouldn't place our understanding of what's going to happen in what's happening now, no matter how difficult life can be. And I would also like to add that like them, they couldn't place their hopes for salvation in any one of their political leaders, neither should we, whether it's a Republican or a Democrat. They're not our salvation. We know this. Just have to remind us. Our hope lies in the truth of God's word. And we're reminded of his promises there. That's why we pick up these books. That's why we're, we're trying to understand why God inspired these, these scriptures. We need to look back at these histories so that we too can have confidence that God keeps his promises because after all, he always has and he always will. Amen?